for us. Nehemiah 6, verse 1. Now it came to pass when Sambalad and Tobiah and Geshem the Arabian and the rest of our enemies heard that I had built the wall and that there was no breach left therein, though at that time I had not set up the doors upon the gates. That Sambalad and Geshem sent unto me, saying, Come, let us meet together in some one of the villages in the plain of Ono. You might want to make a note there. Ono was a city of Benjamin about 30 miles away. They thought to convince Nehemiah of meeting in a neutral location, if you would. But notice Nehemiah, God had given him wisdom during that time. But they thought to do me mischief. And I sent messengers unto them, saying, I am doing a great work, so that I cannot come down. Why should the work cease whilst I leave it and come down to you? Yet they sent unto me four times after this sort, and I answered them after the same manner. I've got a question for you. How many times do you get pushed in the corner before you say, I will do it? Or how many times do you get pushed in the corner, you'll say, I'm not going to do it? They went to him four times. Then notice verse 5. Then sent Sambalad his servant unto me in like manner the fifth time with an open letter in his hand. I want you to imagine this open letter is being equivalent to being served with a lawsuit. That's pretty scary. To serve the lawsuit, you're just kind of wondering. Your mind is spinning. You read, you need to respond in so many days and all those kind of things. I mean, it's very scary to get something like that. And notice what happens here. Wherein was written... It is reported among the heathen, that is the surrounding nations. And Gashmu, Gashmu is another name for Geshem. And Gashmu saith that, that thou and the Jews think to rebel, for, the, for which cause thou buildest the wall, that thou mayest be their king according to these words. And thou hast also appointed prophets to preach of thee at Jerusalem, saying, There is a king in Judah, and now shall it be reported to the king, that is the king of Persia, according to these words, Come now, therefore, and let us take counsel together. In other words, saying, If you don't come, we're going to make sure that this report about you stirring a rebellion is going to spread. This was a slanderous rumor they were spreading. Then I sent unto him, saying, There are no such things done as thou sayest, but thou feignest them out of thine own heart. For they all made us afraid, saying, Their hand shall be weakened from the work, that it be not done. And would you notice his prayer tonight? Now therefore, O God, strengthen my hands. And tonight our prayer is, God, please strengthen our hands. Strengthen our hands for the good work that you've called us to do. Father, this evening, thank you that you're so good. Thank you for the choir song that reminds us by worship we need to bow our need. Father, we can never worship you enough. And we can never pour out enough adoration to you for the great God that you are. Paul said to Timothy, now unto the king, eternal, immortal, the only wise God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Later on in that same letter, he told Timothy that, Lord, you're the great king of kings and Lord of lords, the potentates of all. And God, we thank you today that you're the great God. You're the only God. You're, you're the God of all creation. You're the God of all comfort. You're the God who bruises Satan under our feet. And even right now, we call upon you, God, that you bruise Satan under our feet. I know, Lord, this evening... <clears throat> There's a reason why all week long you've impressed on me beyond everything else I've studied and have reviewed and have just kind of contemplated upon that this is something you want your people to hear again and maybe for some be the first time. And I just pray this evening that, God, you'll help me to be in the Spirit. The Bible says about John that he was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day. The Bible says that Jesus was filled with the Spirit in the wilderness. And I'm just thankful today the location doesn't inhibit the Spirit of God, and the days do not inhibit the Spirit of God. But I do know one thing, Lord. This is your day, and you're to be honored. It's a day when Jesus rose again from the dead. And, Lord, you've given exaltation to the Lord's Day, to the first day of the week, that on that day the people of God are to assemble and be under the Word of God, 
And Lord, as we humble ourselves, and I humble myself before you, help us this evening to be doers of the word and not hearers only. And help us tonight to look into that perfect law of liberty. And Lord, to be men and women who practice pure religion and undefiled before God. That Lord, that we understand that we're to visit the fatherless and the widows in their affliction. And to keep ourselves unspotted from the world. Father, our world is in need of pure religion. It's in need of godly religion. It's in need, Lord, of biblical religion. And we're in need tonight of just a visit from God, a moving of the the Holy Spirit. God, my great prayer, Lord, is that we'd see a revival like they did in days of old. Lord, my desire tonight that we'd have a, a Pentecostal stirring in our hearts, in our church, just like they did in the book of Acts on the day of Pentecost. Oh, Spirit of the living God, fall fresh on me and fall fresh upon your people. God, give us a holy stirring, we pray. I pray as we anticipate, Lord, the <clears throat> friend day coming up. The Bible says of Stephen on, uh, that when he preached before that great multitude of Jews, the Bible says they could not resist the wisdom and the power by which he spoke. And I pray for that same power. I pray for that same wisdom, God, for Friend Day. In fact, even for this service tonight, that the Spirit of God would permeate the inner chambers of our heart because you know the chambers of our imagery and you know, God, what goes on in our thoughts and our hearts. And we pray, pray this evening that every thought be brought captive to the obedience of Jesus Christ. So tonight, work in our midst, be glorified and magnified. And we'll thank you for this in Jesus' name and all God's people say amen you may be seated notice chapter 6 verse 1 it starts off by saying now came to pass you know the work in the ministry it's a it's a it's a perhaps beyond any other place the ministry is a place at least in a church that should be thriving that things are always happening things are moving and the focus of attention this this evening as we get to the midway part of the book of Nehemiah in chapter 6 the focus has been entirely in this book on a man by the name of Nehemiah Nehemiah was not a preacher. Nehemiah was not a pastor. Nehemiah was not a prophet. In fact, we don't have any messages recorded by this man, but Nehemiah certainly was a spiritual leader. Nehemiah, as we look at his, this man's life, he was a man referenced to us in chapter 1, as a, or chapter 2, verse 1, as the king's cupbearer. If you know anything about being a cupbearer, that was a very important job, a very well-paying job, a very risky and dangerous job. As a cupbearer, he had to basically sample all of the king's meat and food. Now, for those of you who are like me who like to eat, that sounds pretty cool, amen? to eat somebody's food and to sample it. But you have to think from the context of being a king's cupbearer, that is very dangerous because if there's poison in it, you're the one who gets poisoned, right? You're the one that's going to fall from the poison. But beyond sampling the food, the cupbearer had to have a very wise understanding of how the flow of everything worked in the king's palace. He had to be familiar with everyone who worked in that palace. He had to know who, who was in charge of the kitchen. He had to be, in fact, he probably was involved with the hiring and firing. He had to know who was involved in the kitchen. He had to know in advance what was being prepared for the king's meal. He had to know what ingredients were going in. He had to know if there was going to be change in personnel. He had to know all those things. He had to know who the butlers were. He had to know who the servants were. He had to know who was going to go from the kitchen over to the, the king's palace and bring in the food. He had to know who was on shift that day. He had to know who the soldiers were. I mean, he had to have all of this knowledge. And over a period of time, a man who was chosen to be the cupbearer, he was in a very well-respected, a very highly trusted position. And he would get the king's heart, and the king would get his heart. He would be able to bend the king's heart, if you would, because he was trusted. He had to be a man of great faithfulness, a great fidelity, a great man of trust. And so this man, by the name of Nehemiah, was a Jew by background. He was a Jew racially. I mean, he was a pure, 100% pure Jew. But somehow, because of the, because of the exile of the, of, the, of, the, of the Jews in Babylon that led to in Persia, most likely, Nehemiah was a man that was born, perhaps, in Babylon and found his way in the kingdom of Persia. And now we're at the king, Ahasuerus is the king there. And he's the king's cupper. He holds an important, important position. And uh, it wasn't easy for the king to easily replace the cupbearer. Cupbearers had to be very careful of even who they chose as a replacement thing. So we see a man who's highly respected. We see a man who's well paid. We see a man of great wealth and a great influence. But this man, Nehemiah, was a Jewish patriot. He loved his nation. He loved his people. In spite of all the things that happened, we find this man loved his nation. In chapter 1, we have the account there where his brother came, came back into, came into uh, to visit there. We're at the king's palace there, and on the winter palace, and his brother came with some other men. And the first thing on, on Nehemiah's mind, he asked his brother, he says, hey, tell me about what's going on with our city, and what's going on with the Jews there. I mean, I appreciate that. You know, I don't know about you, but when I'm away from church a little bit there, I want to call in, I want to find what's going on with the church, and what's happening with our people, and I want to get a report on things like that. And I want to know what's happening with our church. When I see preacher friends from other places, I want to know, how's your church doing, and how's your family doing, what's going on there? And Nehemiah had the same feeling, even though he was not 
not in Jerusalem. He wanted to know what's going on in Jerusalem. He said, what's going on in the people? And he got the report that the walls were still in disarray. The walls were still burnt down. The gates had not been put back up. And you've got to remember, the when the Babylonians came in, they burned all this stuff down. They burned down the temple. They burned down the walls. They beat it down. The gates were left. And if you just can imagine, more than 70 years later, the Jews came out of captivity 70 years, after 70 years, but the Persians came in because the Persians had defeated, the Medes and Persians had defeated the Babylonians. And as, the, as, a, as they were there, there then the, 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 the Persian rules going on. And Ahasuerus, of course, is about the, the third or fourth king into this process there. So maybe a hundred years has gone by. Maybe more than a hundred years has gone by. And here's the report Nehemiah gets. The report is this. He's saying, nothing's changed. The walls are still burnt. There's just rubbish there. There's just ashes there. The gates are still burned. They're charred. Nothing's been done. The city walls, the city is unfortified. It's left open, and he knew automatically in his mind what that meant. That meant that, that basically Jerusalem was the scorn of all the surrounding nations. They were easy pickings for anybody to come in to attack them and take advantage of them. And when Nehemiah heard that, Nehemiah was very burdened in his heart. He was broken in his soul. And the rest of Nehemiah chapter 1, we read this man's prayer. We read about his repentance, confessions of sins, and realize that something needs to be done about the situation. Well, here we find this man. He's a king's cupper. He's a, he's a Jewish patriot, but he's also a man of God. May I tell you tonight, you don't have to be a preacher to be a man of God. A man of God's a man who's, who's a man after God's own heart. And I want to encourage men tonight. Wake up, rise up, and be a man of God. Amen? Be a man of prayer. Be a man who's devoted to God. Be a man that represents yourself out in the community, out in society, that, that, that you're a man of God. I preached to the men the other day. <clears throat> A message from First uh, Samuel eight nine, where it said of Sam, where, where Saul was looking, he was chasing after donkeys, and, and he got to, and his servant said, "Hey, listen, we, it's, and we know, we, I know you want to stop, but he said in the city there, there is a man of God who's honorable. And listen, it ought to be that in your community, in your area, the people know that there are men who are honorable, men that seek after God, that you're devoted to the Lord. Nehemiah was a man of God. Nehemiah, as we read through this book, is a man of prayer. Notice in this chapter, we have one of his prayers mentioned here in verse verse nine. In fact, we notice in chapter five verse 19 he closes off chapter 5 verse 19 with a prayer he says think upon me my God for good according to all they've done for my people he was a man of courage but I want you to write this down tonight Nehemiah was a man of courage he was a man of God he was a man of holiness he was a man of prayer but I want you to understand something tonight that's part of our message Nehemiah was a man of great determination and Nehemiah as we get to chapter 6 <clears throat> He's just dealt with a major problem in chapter 5. In the midst of the construction process, the Jews are learning we can trust this man. We can confide our reports to this man. He's not the king, but we know that we can trust this man. And the Jews together in chapter 5 came to Nehemiah, and you have to imagine how big this problem was. They came to him. And they said, we've got an economic problem. We've got a crisis right here in the city. They said, a dearth came, lack of rain, famine. And when there's a famine, there's a food shortage. And when there's a food shortage, that means the economy's in trouble. And things were not doing very well economically for Jerusalem. And the Jews were realizing they were at a very critical state in their lives. And what, what they did, with a lot of, like a lot of people do, they decided, well, let's mortgage our homes and our vineyards and our lands. And let's try to take some money out of, that, of what we have, in the, out of our equity. And hopefully that the economy will change. If the economy changes, then we can come back around and pay that off. But the economy didn't change. And as they mortgaged their lands, they mortgaged their properties, things like that, the elders and rulers of the city who served as, if I can say this, as loan sharks... We're, more, we're borrow, lending them borrow money, but they were doing it and charging them usury or exorbitant interest rates. Now, you're familiar with that because if you've got a credit card in your pocket, you understand that credit card companies charge you exorbitant interest rates if you let your balance get beyond where it should be. And instead of paying at a nominal interest rate, you're paying double-digit rates that are astronomical. If you know anything about repaying debt or something like that, you, if you're just paying off the interest, you'll never get that principal paid down. And that is not a good feeling, and that's not good for your credit report. And these people are at this place, and not only got so bad that they'd mortgage everything they had, they got so desperate because of the dirt, they said, well, listen, they, they pledged your children, and pledging your children was the last resort, and that was the worst thing to do, because pledging your children resulted in one thing. That meant that the heathen nations around them, they could become slaves and sold off as slaves. So they were in a very, very bad situation, and <clears throat> they came to Nehemiah, 
and said, Nehemiah, we're under great oppression by all this situation. Our city leaders have led us down this place. These are men, they're supposed to be our spiritual leaders and, and people that, that they're supposed to lead us the right direction. And we are, we are financially bankrupt. We're not sure what's going to happen to our children. And there was a great situation there. And as a leader, Nehemiah, this is thrust on Nehemiah. And Nehemiah had to take a stand there. And he goes before the elders and the, Jew, the rulers of the Jews. He said, what you've done is wrong. That took great boldness to do that because they could have crucified him at that moment in time. They could have kicked him out and the project would have stopped. And I want to remind you, the devil always knows how to find ways to get the work of God to stop. And if the devil wants to get the work of God to stop, here's what he does. He'll find something to get, get a big distraction. And this became a big distraction where the, the, the distraction from this resulted in Nehemiah having to get the people the, together. And the, with the people there and the rulers, he says, what you're doing is not good. And amazingly, God worked in the hearts of those rulers. They respected him so much. They said, you're right. We will, rep we will repay everything we've done. We'll give them back their lands. We'll wipe out their debt. We'll give them everything back. And everything was restored. And so we get to chapter 5, verse 19. And, and Nehemiah says, think upon me, my God, for good, According to all that I've done for this people. Now let me tell you where Nehemiah is at as we get to chapter 6. Nehemiah is emotionally, mentally, even spiritually exhausted from that confrontation. Because he didn't really know how this thing was going to turn out. If the rulers and the elders decided to buck him. They decided they were not going to follow through with this. They would have had a major division inside the city of Jerusalem. And part would have held with the rulers. Part would have held with, the, with Nehemiah. And a good part of the people would have held with Nehemiah. And there could have been a great rebellion. And basically the work would have halted and stopped. And the enemies of the Lord on the outside would have said, Great, we didn't even have to do anything to solve this problem. We, it's it's where, where, where we wanted to be at. So we get to chapter 6 and we find there's a new problem Nehemiah faces. All of us face adversities. All of us face problems. I remind you in the midst of a church that's trying to go forward for Jesus Christ. I'm very cognizant every single day, morning and evening, that as we try to go forward, our church family has adversities. Our church family has problems. There are surgeries that still are scheduled that need to go on. There are people that still need to go through cancer treatments. There are people still in financial and legal problems. There are people still having marital issues. There are people still, their hearts are broken because there's, there's discord between them and their children. There's all these kind of things that go on there. And this evening, we want to look at this man, Nehemiah, and we want to look at these first nine verses for a few minutes this evening. And to see the importance of having determination and perseverance resilience in the midst of what we do. Because you know what? You get tired in the work, and I get tired in the work. You get discouraged in the work, and if the devil hasn't thrown a fiery dart at you, get ready, he's going to fire one at you tonight, amen? And he's going to fire one at you, and he's going to fire one at me, and he's going to try to get you off track and try to get you to stop serving God. He's going to try to get you angry with somebody else. He's going to try to get you discouraged from doing the right things of God. If you're new to the church and you've just started coming and you just love getting the word of God, I'm going to tell you tonight, the devil is going to test you to get you off track and get you to miss church for one Sunday, two Sundays, three Sundays, four Sundays, and five Sundays there. I want to see tonight how Nehemiah dealt with all of these adversities in the midst of all that, how God got him through it. Number one, would you notice tonight with me the pressures? The unholy trinity of Sambalat, Tobiah, and Geshem raised their ugly head again. He had an internal problem in chapter 5 he had to deal with. And in chapter 6, verse 1, the external problem came back. Listen, tonight, we have a holy trinity. We worship God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Aren't you thankful for that tonight? I'm thankful tonight for the trinity. I'm thankful for the God. They are all one and the same. 1 John 5, 7 says, the Father, the, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. We're thankful for that. But I remind you tonight, just as much as we have a holy trinity, a holy God, Satan has his unholy trinity. Trinity. He has his unholy God. Now, they're not the same as God, but I want to tell you that if you think about the future prophecy, there'll be Satan and the false prophet and the beast in the book of Revelation in the time of tribulation. And during Nehemiah's time, there was this, this unholy trinity of Sambalat and Tobiah and Geshem the Arabian. They were all Gentiles. They were all non-Jews. Sambalat was a Moabite. His name means strong. Tobiah was an Ammonite. His name it was, was, means Jehovah is good. And I don't know who gave him that name, but they, they probably thought there'd be something good out of that. And Geshem was an Arabian name whose name means rain. These three men 
We're an unholy trinity. They represent and picture to you and I the enemies of the Christian faith, the enemies of Satan, the world, and the flesh. And this unholy trinity gathered together, and we saw them over in chapter 2, and we saw them over in chapter 4, where they used words and threats and intimidation to deal with Nehemiah. And you'll notice the pressure. Nehemiah has gotten back to the work. He's just gotten out of this internal strife that was in the city. And the Bible says that the enemies of God, in verse 1, heard that I built it the wall, and there was no breach left therein. Now let me tell you something tonight. People drive by Heritage Baptist Church and people get our tracks and people know other people in our church. I'm thinking about just about two weeks ago. I don't remember who I was with. We were out soul winning and uh, a lady came to the door. She just lost her husband and, uh, and uh, the, the soul winner that was with me, we were talking with this lady and she says, I know somebody from your church and I, I cringed a little bit. I said, man, I hope it's a good report we hear about our church. Amen, you know? And she said, I know somebody from your church and it was a good report. They said, your, per- your church member's there. They've invited me to church. But I want to remind you tonight night that as much as we know what's going on, people on the outside know what's going on too. They know what's going on from your testimony. They know what's going on when they see the buildings come up. And these, this, these three men, Sambal and Tobiah and Geshem, had heard that the wall was built. And amazingly, here's a good report. The wall was built. And listen, there was no wall before, a few days before that. This wall was built. I mean, if you think about it, they say that the, the, per, the, the outside perimeter, the circumference of the entire city of Jerusalem was about three to four miles, if you want it, circular-wise. And if you, if you read this verse correctly here, it says the wall was built and there was no breach. There was no gap between the walls. I mean, the wall was put back up. We read chapter 3 how every one of these believers, these, these, these people of Jerusalem, they were next to each other, next to each other, and they were building, and someone was in charge of one phase, and someone else was in charge of another phase. Great organization on the part of Nehemiah. And then we get to chapter 4. They worked very diligently in getting the, build, the wall built up. And chapter 4 tells us they labored in the work from evening to morning. And some of them, as they labored, others held their spears to be, prevent attack. I mean, the people worked feverishly. And now the enemy had seen. They they'd got on their horses, and they circled around, and they witnessed what was going on, and they saw what was happening there. And they saw that the wall was built, and they saw there, that there was no breach they're in. And so because of that, they recognized that they needed to do something because they were not very happy. They were not happy that the wall was built. Can I tell you something tonight? The devil from day one when Heritage Baptist Church started has not been happy with this church. He's not happy that we still have morning services, Sunday morning services, and Sunday evening services, and Wednesday evening services. And the devil's not happy that, that we still are actively trying to pursue souls and win people to Christ. Thank God for the 80 or so people that were at church yesterday going out with happy faces and a joyful heart and trying to reach people with the gospel. Thank God for the several hundred that were at church this morning. But I want to tell you tonight, the devil is as unhappy today as he's ever been, if not more so, in anything that goes on. And just like these men, they were not very happy with what Nehemiah was doing. And so we see the pressure they put in. Now let me talk to you tonight. You may be going through pressures. You might be having family pressures, and you might be having financial pressures, and you might be just having personal pressures, and you might be having job pressures, and you might be having some kind of pressure that's going on that's bothering you, that weighs you down, that discourages you. Maybe an event happened just recently in your life. It's weighing you down, and God knows that. But I want you to see tonight something. When pressures come, pressures determine what's really inside of us. And pressures determine what's going to come out of us. And pressures determine what you and I are going to do and how much faith we have in God. And I want you to notice the kind of pressures that these three men, Sambalat and Tobiah and Geshem, were putting on Nehemiah and upon the people of God, and principally upon Nehemiah. You want to write this down. Number one, the devil uses the pressure of cessation. The devil uses the pressure of cessation. Look at verse 2. Sanballat and Geshem sent unto me, saying, Come, let us meet together in some one of the villages in the plain of Ono, but they thought to do me mischief. The first thing we notice is the devil uses cessation. The devil, hey, listen to me tonight because he might be working on you. The devil wants to get you and me to stop. Stop tithing. Stop going to church. Stop reading your Bible. Stop praying. Stop getting involved. Cut back. The devil wants to use to say, here's what he told Nehemiah. Hey, Nehemiah, let's have a summit. Let's have a meeting. And here's what we'll do. Let's choose a neutral location. We'll go 30 miles away, 30 miles south of here. We'll go down to the city of Ono. 
The city of Benjamin. Let's go down to Ono and meet there. I'm going to remind you tonight, the, the devil wants to use the pressure of cessation. He wants you to stop being a good husband. He wants you to stop being a good wife. He wants you to be, stop being a good student. He wants you to stop being a good Christian. He wants you to stop those things. He wants you to stop having your devotion. He wants you to stop pursuing holiness without which no man shall see God. He wants you to stop worshiping God. He wants you to stop being a good witness. He wants you to stop being involved in friendly. Hey, listen, pastors face it all the time. Pastors are being tempted by set the devil and pressure by the devil to stop having standard and to stop having more church and stop having special conferences and stop having leadership training and stop having all these different kinds of things and let's have a happy-go-lucky time and let's have more part time and things like that and I'm all for good times we need to have but I remind you tonight one of the things the devil wants to use in a church like this that's trying to get the job done trying to be biblical is to get us to stop doing what God wants us to do the pressure of cessation but notice verse 2 again, there's the pressure of sellout. Sellout is compromise. Esau sold his birthright for a morsel of bread. Lot saw the well-watered plains of Sodom. Judas saw 30 pieces of silver and sold Jesus out for the price of a slave. Compromise. Sell out is compromise. Do you understand in verse 2, if Nehemiah had agreed to a summit with these men and met down at Ono, do you know what that would have done to the work? Do you know what that would have done to the morale? Do you know what kind of message that would have sent to all the Jews that were there that were being oppressed? As you read through the whole book of Nehemiah, Sembalat and Tobiah, those men got some, they, got, they had intermarriages and things going on with the Jews, and there was political things going on. The Jewish rulers knew that they could get more favor with these powerful men by getting their daughters and sons married off and things of that nature. Do you know if Nehemiah had gone down there, there would have been patriotic Jews who before were fearful and now had courage, who before had no sense of leadership, and they were following the leadership of God. Those Jews would have stopped serving God, they would have got discouraged, and they would have quit the thing, and if any other spiritual leader would have come up, they would not have followed them because of Nehemiah's bad example. I remind you tonight, the devil wants you and I to sell out. Mothers and fathers, please do not sell out. Mothers and fathers, stay firm about the Word of God. Stay firm about having your family in church. Stay firm about reading your Bible. Stay firm about the fact that what we do as a church is the right thing. Don't be critical of the church, and don't be critical of your preacher, and don't be critical of the work of God. Stay on top of the things of God. Amen. In our Asian cultures, there's a temptation to sell out. Let me preface what I'm going to say right now. I shared a little bit with the Chinese department today. I didn't have enough time to build it up. Please do not get offended. I'm saying this as your pastor lovingly. One of the pressures in and this is all, all places, in fact, I, even with our Hispanic, Hispanic population here, our Hispanic members. But when you get married, please understand this. Marriage is honorable in all. And please remember this. Your coming together in marriage is a picture of the church and Jesus Christ, the bridegroom. It is a testimony of that. In two weeks, you pray for James and Natalie. They're getting married next, next Saturday, basically. And when you get married, as we counsel our married couples, I tell them in all of this and now, I need, there's some things I need to talk to you about. And I'm going to talk to you today. Please, I'm going to, I just want you to listen to me tonight. Number one, when you have a wedding, and you young people are single, please listen to me tonight. When you have a wedding, you're on public display before everybody in church. Before unsaved people, and understand this, please understand this to me today. I'm not very smart, but I, I watch trends of what's going on. I know enough about this. The trends are out after your money. They're not out after glorifying God. Ladies, I encourage you, please, in your selection of wedding dresses, your number one goal is to be modest and to be covered up when you walk down that aisle to that man that you've not kissed before. And that you come to that man realizing that is the man that God has reserved for you. Your shoulders should be covered. 
your cleavage should be covered, your back should be covered, you should come down in a modest apparel before God. If you, if you need some scripture to back it up, I'll take you to first, I'll take you there to First Timothy 2 9, and I'll take you through the message I'm going to teach and preach through from the book of Esther. Because even the queen, the queen, that first queen that's mentioned there, he wanted to put her on public display. She said, You're not putting me on public display. She says, I've got some modesty about me. I'm not going to do that. You, first of all, need to do that. You men, you need to be thinking about, even, even though guys are very easy, guys just get a tuxedo and a pair of shoes and they're ready to go. But even guys, you need to be cognizant. You need to give some leadership to that area. You don't want to be showing your wife's body off to other people there, especially at a, at a Christian wedding. And then as you plan your wedding, you want to be thinking about your music and your schedule and all of the things that go on with your wedding. You want all of that to give indication that there's something exceptionally better about a Christian couple to get married. Amen? And then you get to having a banquet and a dinner there. And, you know, a lot of our couples have been very good about this, and I'm thankful for that. But let me tell you something tonight. One of the great temptations, if you've got unsaved parents, and your unsaved parents are going to put pressure on you. They're going to tell you, well, we, you know, we want to put some liquor on the table. And we want to do that. You can't be gun-shy and leave that off and wait to deal with it. You've got to deal with it right at the beginning. You've got to meet with your parents. And if you can't do it, I'll go with you. And I'll go for you and talk to her. They want to get mad at someone, let them get mad at me. That's fine. That's okay, okay? Let me get mad. I'll just tell them, stand in line with everybody else that's mad at me, okay? You know, that's fine, amen? But I'll just say, hey, listen, you know what? Just, you need to let them know. Mom and Dad, we love you, but we want to tell you something. And I, maybe I haven't been very good about this, but mom and dad, I just want to tell you, I, I love you very much, and I thank God for you, but I want to remind you that God saved me, and I'm not just your child, I'm a child of God, and the wedding we're going to have, the man I'm getting married to, the girl I'm getting married to, they are Christians, and they love God, and mom and dad, we're just going to ask you one thing, we cannot and will not have liquor, we don't care if you pay for whatever, we're not going to have liquor or alcoholic beverages anywhere in our wedding, you better say amen to that tonight, amen, <laughs> you're not going to have that there. He said, what if they slip it in? You can't prevent that, but you can do a lot to try to hedge it off as much as you can. And you've got to be thinking about these things. I mean, you're, you're, you know, don't, don't see, say, well, we're going to have a good time. You can have a good time in a Christian way and still glorify God. Amen? I'm just saying, hey, you're going to feel a lot of pressure. Hey, there's a pressure of funerals. In all of our Asian cultures and even some of the Hispanic cultures, you know, you've got, you've got, you've got some cultural distinction. In the Asian culture, at least with the Chinese, there's a lot of this Buddhist influences over there, okay? Now, number one, we don't bow three times to any dead person. That is worshiping the dead. You say, but I love them. I know you love them. You can bow once to show your respect, but you don't worship them. We're not into ancestor worship. That's the very same thing. Why we're trying to get the gospel with them. And you have to realize before all this comes about, you've got to meet with your family. Hey, let me tell you a story. My, my, you know, some of some things I couldn't stop my mom from doing. My father passed away. I, we were getting ready the day that they had him all prepared, the day before the funeral service. And I met my siblings. We met over there at the, at the, at the funeral home and so forth there. And I said, Edmund, I need to talk to my brother. I said, hey, I need to run through schedule with you. What are we doing? And, and so forth there. And they told me they wanted to do some things. And I said, I, and, I, and I looked at my sister, my brother. I pulled them aside. I grabbed them like this. I started, I wasn't their brother anymore. I became their pastor at that moment of time, okay? And I pulled them both together like this. I said, hey, I got to talk to you beside, outside of mom. I said, you can't do that in the church. And I said, how can you do to the church? I said, even if it wasn't a church, you can't do that. I said, dad was a Christian. Dad was saved. I led, I led dad to Christ. I know he's saved. I said, look, I've got on my phone here the date that he got assurance of salvation. I've got a picture and dad got saved. I said, we can't have that. You're not going to do that here. I said, you, you, got, you can't do that there. And, you know, I, they, I did it in a way. I didn't try to be offensive to them. And they may have gotten a little offended. I don't think they did. But, you know, I just had to take a stand on that issue. And I remind you something tonight. When you, when you plan these services, sometimes it's out of your hands. You've got to work with your family. And please help me. Please help me with this. If your family you know is very Buddhist in that tradition, please get me in there as soon as you can. You say, well, my parents won't like you. That's fine. Let them get mad at me more than get mad at you. But help me to get there so we can talk them, instruct them, and help them understand what we're going to do. And we'll try to, we'll try to be honorable to, to, to as best we can with them. But we just can't have those kind of things. Listen, you don't bow three times. Hey, listen, you've got to be very careful. Be careful of this. Because in Buddhist ceremonies, they don't want you to take incense. They don't want you to do the things with the incense. You've got to take a stand. Or here's the thing the Chinese do. A lot of Chinese, they do when they, when they put the casket inside the, inside the ground. They want you to turn your back away. And I've been to many where they turn your back away. Hey, listen, if, you're, if your loved one went to heaven, you don't need to turn your back on that. Listen, their spirit is with the Lord, amen? Their soul is with Jesus Christ. You don't have to be afraid of that. You say, well, I don't want to be disrespectful. It's all a matter how you deal with it. And you need to deal with it up front, not at the back end, not at the day of the ceremony, not the day of that, because it just puts you in an awkward place. And listen, we need to pray tonight that God will give us a generation of young people growing up that have holy bonus before God. Because listen to me tonight. Many of you have unsafe parents still, and I pray for your parents. In fact, this morning... 
Yesterday, I was spending a little bit extra time praying for unsaved parents to get saved. And you need to get me in front of your parents. You need to get my wife and I there sooner and not later. Don't wait to their deathbed to get, get me there. You say, well, to give you pushback. Well, that's fine. Let them give me pushback. But I'm, I'm going to be prayed up, and I'm going to go in the power of the Holy Spirit. And after we give them the word of God, it's their decision what they're going to do with Jesus Christ. But until then, you've got to get us in front of them so they can get an understanding about what's going on there. Otherwise, they're going to think that Christianity and their, their pagan beliefs or whatever it may be can coexist together. It cannot coexist together. Listen. Let God be God and every man a liar, the Bible says. They're sellout. And these people wanted to send Nehemiah to sell out. Notice in verse 2, they said, come, let us meet together in some one of the villages in the plain of Olam. They wanted to sell out. If he had sold out, he would have ruined his testimony, he would have stopped the morale and hurt the work. Hey, listen tonight, the devil's throwing a fiery dart at some of us this evening to get us to sell out and to get away from the things of God and to have a different testimony. And I just want to encourage you tonight, whatever you're putting on social media, don't put on social media something that indicates you've sold out to the devil. Don't be an Esau, sold out his birthright for one morsel of bread. Listen, sell Salvation cost Jesus his blood. He shed his precious blood for you and I. And so great a sacrifice and so great a salvation. Don't trample underfoot the precious Son of God. Listen, he loved you and died for your sins so you can go to heaven. Don't treat Christianity with an idea that I just can get away with what I want to do. Oh, you need to get back in love with Jesus. Say, Jesus, thank you for loving me and dying on the cross for my sins. Listen, he doesn't just use cessation. He doesn't use sell it. Listen, he uses slander. Look at verses 5 to 7. In verses 5 to 7, they said, well, they went to him four times, and he still wouldn't come down. So in verses 5 to 7, they said, we're going to use a different tactic. In verses 5 to 7, they contract, concocted this idea and saying, listen, we have heard a report. And you be careful when people come around you in church, especially when you're in a weak moment in your life, when they say, we have heard this. They said, we have heard among the heathen, and Gashmu substantiates this, that you and the Jews think to rebel. Now, what they want to do is get, get Nehemiah in trouble, so he'd lose his job, he'd lose the trust of King Ahasuerus, he would lose all those things. He said, basically, he said, you're telling people that you are going to be the king, and you've got people, you've got men in Jerusalem preaching about you, that there's a new king in Judah, and now she reported to the king according to these words. They said, listen, with these words going, you better come down to Ono and have a conference with us. Listen, the devil, if he can't get you to stop, and if the devil can't get you to sell out, the devil's going to get you through slander. You know why? Because all of us are so gentle and delicate with our personalities, we can't handle criticism very well. I wish I could tell you how many people quit church because they heard something that wasn't true, and they quit. The devil threw a slander at them. They'll use carnal Christians of the world to say something bad about you. Remind you, the very name devil, diabolos, means slanderer, accuser of the brethren. Satan went before God and accused Job of many different bad things. Remind you today, if he did it to Job, he's doing it to you and me. The devil uses sell on, the devil uses slander, the devil uses cessation. But notice something else here. What you notice, we get down to verses 8 and 9. The devil uses second thoughts. I mean, he came to them five times, and this fifth time was pretty strong. I equated it. I gave the analogy in about verses 5 to 7 earlier. I said what that letter represented was just the equivalent of being served with a lawsuit. This is the allegations. And I remind you, Sambalat and Geshem and Tobiah, these men were very powerful. They were very, very strong. When you read through all of Nehemiah, these men were very powerful. What they, and I'm going to tell you tonight, when I consider it, some of the things we have to deal with around this area, and some of the things we have to pray for God's intervention. Listen, we've got a court system that's pretty strong, and we've got some city officials that are pretty strong. We've got some state officials very strong. We've got some things going on up in the assembly that are not very good for our state and not very good for our Christianity, not very good for our churches right now. That's why, men, I hope you'll come and be part of that minute warning and does that God speak to your heart and work I mean brother Harold Vaughn will, pr- will encourage your heart great old preacher of the word of God Dr. John Getch he's one of the prophets of this generation they'll encourage your heart in the Lord but I'm saying tonight the devil will just do these things and now, now they've now they've been working on Nehemiah watch what happens here Nehemiah responds in verse 8, he says, There are no such things done as thou said thou faintest him out of the heart but after he said that he started to get inside of him the devil knows when we, if I can get words in your mind to play with your mind, the devil knows that over time it's going to cause you to weaken what you do. And notice verse 9, it says, For they all made us afraid. 
When fear comes, perfect love has been cast aside. And the fear of man bringeth a snare. And when fear comes, you start to doubt what you're doing and doubt your decisions. And you're second-guessing what you're doing. And you're having second thoughts about whether or not we should continue. So remember now, the Bible says in verse 1 that the work was established and the wall was built up. And with the wall built up there, listen, the wall was built up and there was no breach therein. And they, they're nary completions. We get through this chapter there. But listen, the devil doesn't want it to finish. And let me tell you tonight, the devil doesn't want you and he doesn't want me to finish the Christian life strong. And so they had second thoughts. That offering bag comes around on a giving by faith offering, you get second thoughts. We take them another special offering for the building and, and for, or for maybe for faith promise, you get second thoughts. You put your pledge in and maybe it was a substantial pledge, and, but maybe now after a couple months has gone by, you're getting second thoughts. You made a decision, you're going to be in church more than just Sunday morning. You're not just going to be a religious person, you're going to be a sold-out Christian for Jesus Christ. By the way, that's the only kind of Christian we should be, is a sold-out Christian for Jesus Christ. And the devil puts second thoughts in your mind. I'm not just saying to you tonight, tonight there's pressures. Adversity is always with us. Our days are full of trouble and full of grief. You always have pressures. I remind you tonight, the devil knows how to press that button on you and press that button on me to get us to cave into pressure. We see the pressure, but you notice, secondly, the practices real quickly tonight. I need to get going. What did Nehemiah do? What do you and I do when we have pressures like that? Bitter pressures. But I want you to see some biblical practices. We get over to verse 2, and they said, hey, come down to the plain of Ono. In verse 3, I like Nehemiah's response. In verse 3, he said, I am doing a great work. You remind yourself every single day. You remind yourself when you get in that car and start the engine, you are doing a great work for Jesus Christ. Amen? Listen, soul winning is a great work. Building a church is a great work. Telling people about Jesus is a great work. Going after children and getting them into the church is a great work. Singing in the choir is a great work. Playing in the orchestra is a great work. Preaching away in the Spanish department, Brother Eugene, that's a great work. Working in the Chinese department, maybe slow, Brother Alan, but it's a great work. I remind you, if you're serving as a deacon, it's a great work to serve the people of God. I remind you, if you're an adult growth group teacher, an adult growth group leader, it is a great work of God. It's a great work. Why? Because Jesus founded the church and because we want to serve the living God. And we want to honor God in whatever we do. I'm just saying tonight, when the devil says to quit, you tell him, I can't come down. I am doing a great work for God. Are you discouraged? Sicknesses come, ailments come, doctors fail. But it doesn't change the work of God. By the way, I'm thankful he didn't call it a work. He called it a great work. Amen? And he was doing a great work. Church, I don't have a lot of time for, I get a lot of invitations. You can ask my staff. I get a lot of invitations. And I don't know how pastors, some pastors run their church. I'm not speaking in a, Critical way, but I don't know how they run their. I don't know how they pastor churches. They're running the conference after. Con I mean, they're conference junkies. <laughs> they're just conference after conference after conference. And I think, how do you pastor your church? I mean, I just I'm overwhelmed right now with everything I got on my plate. I don't know how they get it done. But I just remind myself every single day. You know, the goal the goal in the Christian life is not about who knows you. It's more important that I know Him. Amen. The important thing about the Christian life is that I know Him. And the power of his resurrection. The importance of the Christian life is realizing you're doing a great work for God. Great works demand great effort. Great works demand great praying. Great work demands great amount of time. I mean, that's why it's a great work. And so notice what he said. I can't come down. So what do you do when they tell you? Let's meet in Ono. Say no to Ono. Amen? Say no to Ono. When they say let's go to Ono, say Ono. Oh, no, I'm not going to Ono. Oh, no. And I'm not talking about the Ono oh, fish, amen? Say no to Ono. Oh, 
Say, no, I'm not going to go there. I'm not going down that road. I'm not going to compromise. I'm not going to sell out. I'm not going to keep, I'm not going to stop. I'm not going to succumb to slander. I'm not going to let all those, I'm going to say no to those things. Just say, I cannot come down. I'm not going to, stay focused on the work of God. Listen, your job at some point in time is going to keep pushing you and pushing you and pushing you to take on more hours and more things away from God. And I understand all those dynamics. I've been there. But there comes a point in time you've got to realize, hey, I've got to draw the line somewhere. Because I told the preachers, listen, they wouldn't have had a conference on Friday, um, last Friday if all these preachers just decided, there comes a point in time you've got to draw the line of sand, and when you draw the line of sand, you're not going to pass that line. Say no. Say no to sin. Say no to sin. Say no to the devil. Say no to anything that doesn't involve the truth. Say no to compromise. Say no to the world. Say no. Listen, say no. Then secondly, notice verse 4. He's trying to keep building here, but they're bothering him. You ever pray sometimes? And it's one of those mornings where the devil's bombarding you. I mean, you're focused on the Lord, but man, it's just these thoughts are bombarding. It's the devil attacking your thoughts. You feel this great turmoil of soul. Now, I'm not a big Martin Luther fan. Martin Luther was not a Baptist. Martin Luther was a, was a Lutheran, basically. He was a reformist, but, but I read the story there about his prayer life. They said Martin Luther gave three hours a day to prayer. They said one time the pressure was so great on Martin Luther that the devil was just working on him that he, he opened his eyes and he saw, he saw an ink blotter there, and he took the ink blotter and he threw it against the wall, thinking that was the devil there. And they said he threw it against the wall because he really felt literally the devil was right there in that room against him. And he threw it and said, get away from me, devil. I remind you today, sometimes the pressures can be very great on you and me, and we, we've got to realize that the devil doesn't stop. Look at verse 4. But they didn't stop. They sent it to him four times. I mean, this is not a, not a very passive way. Four times they came to him and said, after the sword, they said, hey, come down, come down, come down. And he said, I answered in the same manner. Number one, you need to say no. Number two, you need to be steadfast. I can't come down. He gave him the same answer. You say, man, the devil keeps bothering me. Have the same answer. Tell him the same thing. You get in trouble with something, someone false accuses you, then what you should do at that moment of time, write down all the facts, write everything out, and while it's fresh in your mind, what's happened there, so it's fresh in your mind, and you rehearse it in your mind, and when they keep questioning about it, you give them the same answer each time. And listen, that's what happens with the devil. Every time the devil says quit, every time the devil says throw in the towel, every time the devil says something else about you, you tell him, I cannot come down, I'm doing a great work. You be steadfast, steadfast in the Lord. Hold your ground. Don't leave your post. Be steadfast in holiness. Be steadfast in your devotion. Be steadfast in serving God. Be steadfast these next two weeks in trying to reach souls for Jesus Christ. Be steadfast in being your place. Come with excitement, enthusiasm, anticipation that God's going to do something great in this church. Thirdly, notice this. Verse 8 and 9. He's at a tough place. Now he's got to deal with slander. And we don't know, but maybe they even slipped the letter to the king. And you think about all the the Jews who were very weak, who would have even heard that Nehemiah was trying to start a rebellion. Do you think of what that would have done to the morale? The Bible tells in verse 9, they made us all afraid. And they said by saying, their hands shall be weakened from the work. And Nehemiah did in verse 8 what you and I need to do. We need to be steadfast, but we also need to be strong. We need to be strong. He said, I sent unto him, saying, There are no such things done as thou sayest, but thou feignest them out of thine own heart. Be strong. Be strong in the Lord and the power of his might. We're every now and then, we're going to have situations bigger than us, and we're going to have situations we're going to feel intimidated by, and we're going to have situations we're very overwhelmed by. And by the way, if we have an attitude, a very cocky attitude that we can handle ourselves, then it's just like I said this morning. If we can think we can do it by ourselves, then God's just going to have to have, have us have a night of failure. We can fish all night and catch nothing. And until we fail, we realize we, 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 we made a bad mistake. We have to realize in everything we do, we need the Lord in it. Amen? We need God to help us in that matter. Be strong. And then notice verse 9, if you would. They made us afraid. Now, when fear comes in, there's a lot of bad thoughts that come in your mind. There's a lot of bad feelings you get in your soul. Your wife, your husband get diagnosed with a sickness, and 
you're trying to get your mind wrapped around what's going on and what the doctors say. There's a lot of fear. You go to the hospital, somebody who's got something going on, and you see the fear in their eyes. You're wondering where this is all going to go. Where are you, where, what's going to happen? Notice Nehemiah was in fear in verse 9. He was scared and the people were scared. He didn't tell the people he was scared, but they, they kind of knew that he was. And he, he identified it this way. He said, their hands shall be weakened from the work. You see, our hands in the Bible are a symbol of work. Hands are a symbol of strength. That's why when we shake hands, I love shaking Christian handshakes because it's a, it's a symbol of strength. That we're to be strong in the Lord. And men, be strong in your handshake. Give evidence that you're a man trying to serve and live for God. But at that moment of time, his hands were weak. His hands were weak, and when their hands are weak, your hands are weak. You're not going to get the job done. Your hands are weak. It's not going to happen. Hey, listen, I still need a lot more people to sign up and help out and take some time off the next two weeks to help us get some things around the church ready and prepared for friend day. Don't let your hands get weak right now. And Nehemiah did this fourth thing. He had to be strong. He had to be steadfast. But notice number four, he had to, he had to pray. The Bible says there he got to God. He says, oh, God, strengthen our hands. Strengthen my hands. We need to pray. Listen, in the midst of fear, in the midst of intimidation, in the midst of things overwhelming you, you need to pray. Listen, you don't feel like praying when you're scared, and you don't feel like praying when you're overwhelmed. You don't feel like praying when you're downhearted, but you need to pray. You need to find a, your closet somewhere where you get alone with God and you pray. You need to pray for wisdom. You need to pray for strength. You need to pray for courage. You need to pray for renewed vision. You need to pray for more faith. You pray that God is glorified, but he prayed. He said, oh God, strengthen my hands. He said, God, I'm weak right now, and God, I don't know what to do, but God, I need some straight. He needed to pray and ask God to help him there. He said, strengthen my hands. Church, I want to encourage us tonight that we strengthen our hands. I want you to take that piece of paper that was given to you before the offering was done. At least come with the name and find your place somewhere around the altar as a loving church family to lift up those names before God with hearts that are in unison with each other and with God. We lift up those names before God to pray for people that need Jesus and people we're in contact with and people we're going to see this week and get it on our embedded in our hearts and minds. We're going to get out and try to reach as many people as we can with the gospel and try to get commitments for people to be here on friend day. Let's get out and let's Let's pray God strengthen our hands. And as friend day approaches, teachers and workers, we need to strengthen our hands. And members, we need to strengthen our hands. We're going to get up early and we're going to pray. And we're going to do a little more fasting and praying. We're going to spend more time alone with God. And we're going to say, God, please strengthen my hands because in my power I can do nothing. But with Christ, I can do all things through Christ which strengthens me. And then as we close tonight, would you notice the provision? Verses 9 to 13, verses 10 to 13, we find that Nehemiah had another problem. You see, the enemy's never going to stop. He's relentless. They tried to get him to compromise. They tried to get him to sell out down in Ono. And so then that didn't work. They tried four different times on that. So he wouldn't come down. He wouldn't go meet them for the summit. So the second thing came along, and they said, well, we've got this letter here that says you're trying to rebel against the king, and you're telling people, they're having, you're having men preach about you and, and say that you're going to be the next king. He says, no such things are happening. They realized that he was not an easy pushover. You let the devil know you're not an easy pushover. Amen? So they did something else. Look, at, look what happens in verse 10 and 13. He goes to the house of a man by the name of Shemaiah. This man was shut up inside the house of God. In other words, he was kind of a, he just shut the doors. He kind of lived in God's house. He shouldn't have been in there. And Shemaiah was a paid, a paid hire of Sambalat and Tobiah and Geshem. They said, we want you to get him into God's house and get him to God's house. They'll lock the doors inside God's house and just kind of just insulate himself from everything. And then that way we'll deal with him. And so they said in verse 10, let us meet together in the house of God. This is Shemaiah going to him. Let us meet together in the house of God within the temple and let's shut the doors of the temple for they will come to slay thee. Yea, in the night they will come to slay thee. And the Nehemiah made this statement because he saw what was going on. They basically wanted him to show that he was afraid. They wanted him to insulate and isolate himself from the rest of the work because remember the work, they're trying to get the work not to get finished. 
And just as they were getting to the finishing touches there, they said, go hide yourself in the, work of, in, the, in the temple of God because they're going to kill you. And if they kill you, the work will stop. And Nehemiah saw what was going on there. God had given him much wisdom through all this. And notice verse 11. I love this statement. He said, should such a man as I flee? He said, listen, God put me in this place. God made me the leader of this project. God put me here to lead these people. I've got the faith and confidence of thousands and hundreds of thousands of people. He said, should such a man as I flee? I'm not going to flee right now. I'm not going to run from my post. I'm not going to run from the devil. Listen tonight, no matter what the pressure is that you face, you tell the devil, you tell the enemies of God, I will not flee. I'm not going to run. Should such a man as I flee? Listen, the pressures will get hard, sir. And you're going to want to leave your marriage. Your wife might get a little offside with you there. Again, just kind of get in your face a little bit because maybe you're not doing some things right. And if you're not very careful, you'll listen to the devil's lie to leave your marriage. You stay in your marriage. You stay committed to that home. You stay committed to those children. You stay committed to your church. Don't be like some. They get flippant because they get offended easy. Stay in your church. Ride out the crest. Ride out the hard times. Stay with that situation. Stay in that ministry. Keep serving God. And you say like Nehemiah, should such a man as I flee? Don't flee. Don't run. Don't hide. Stay in the work of God. Say, I'm here in it until God calls me home. So he said, I'm not going to go in. You know what you're going to do? Don't get yourself so wrapped around ministries of the church, you're not doing real ministry. You hear what I'm saying? Don't get so caught up with all the other things, the peripheral things, that you forget real ministries, meeting people right where they're at, and giving them the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's real ministry. You saw in verse 13, he was a hired help. They wanted to make him afraid. So he prayed another prayer. Notice verse 14. My God, think thou upon Tobiah and Sabalat, according to these their works, and on the prophetess Noadiah and the rest of prophets who have put me in fear. It was a sad day when the prophets of God were in cahoots with the politicians. So what was God's provision? As we close, would you notice what God did for him? And God will do for you as we would deal with difficult pressures. Notice the first one, verse 12, God will give you needed wisdom and perception. Look what he did for Nehemiah. And I perceive that God had not sent him. When you're under pressure, claim James 1.5. If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all men liberally. And I know, I know the context of that is dealing about wisdom, about the trial that you're in. But this was a trial he was in. This was pressure he was under. And when you go through intense pressures, even a health trial, any kind of suffering, you need to pray for wisdom about what to do. And listen, God gave him wisdom at a needed time. And you know what? When we go through pressures, there's a lot of things that go through our mind. We need to pray for wisdom. Notice number two. In verses 11 and verse 13, he prayed for God to give him strength and courage. You know what? You can never pray for enough strength from God. And you can never pray for enough courage from God. We need to pray for strength and for courage all the time. We need, you know, I, I pray for our parents raising kids and the young marrieds who are in our church. I pray that God will give you strength and courage because you know what? There are pressures for you to conform to this world and to conform to other couples and to be like everyone else. Listen, there's only one thing, only one person we're to conform to, and that's the image and the person of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Don't let everybody else try to pressure you into its mold. Listen, you want to stand before Jesus one day that, you, that you're kind of like Moses who spent 40 days up in Mount Sinai, that you, there's an essence of the fact that you got very close to God. Number three, would you notice verse 14 when he prayed God strengthened his prayer life? You know the best thing about suffering? You know the best thing about pressures and trials? God makes you a better prayer warrior. God strengthens your prayer life. You learn how to get a hold of God. You thank God every day. I, I told several people who have trials this way. I said, now let's thank God for what he brought in your life. There's always some good that comes out of it. We don't know what it is, but there's always some good that God gives to us in that. And you thank God for the pressures. And ask, ask God, thank you for putting that in my life because he wants you to have a stronger prayer life in your, for, for his glory. Then notice number four. He prays this prayer. And you read the first 14 verses. Man, he's gone through the ringer. But I love verse 15. So the wall was finished in the 20 and 5th day 
of the month Elu in 50 and two days. Man, would you notice number four? God helped to finish the building in record-breaking time in 52 days. Hey, how many wish we could have got the Berean Center up in 52 days? Amen? <laughs> how many wish we could have got the Heritage Center up in 52 days? And a different scenario, different situation. That's a wall versus a building, and they didn't have building codes in those days and all those kind of things there. And they didn't have to worry about the money because Nehemiah helped to front a lot of that. He got permission and help from the king, and he put a lot of his own resources into that. But here's what I'm saying there. You know what? He stayed focused on that thing, and in 52 record-breaking days, the wall got completed. They didn't have, they had a few uh, things to try to interfere and interrupt what they were doing, but they stayed at it, and they kept at it, and they kept at it. The Bible says the wall was finished in the 52nd day. Notice verse 16, I love this. It came to pass when all our enemies heard thereof, and all the heathen that were about us saw these things. Because remember, these are unbelievers that are watching this. They were much cast down in their own eyes, for they perceived that this work was wrought of our God. You know what I have to say about that? Praise God. Amen. Amen. They perceived that this work was of God. I don't like it when people come here who are not members of the church and say, well, you know, this church this and this church that and you're this and that. You know what I want people to say more than anything else? I want them to say, God built this church. God is in this work and God's doing it. I want them to know that God's presence is here. And you want them to know that God's presence is there. But they're not going to be impressed with you and me. They're they need to be impressed with the great God. That I'm so thankful the choir said tonight, bow the knee. Because that's what we want people, when they walk on this campus, to recognize there is a reverence and a love for God that we have there. You're going through pressure. The devil throwing fiery darts at you. You're almost ready to quit. I remind you tonight, you're doing a great work. Don't come down. Keep on praying. Be strong in the Lord. Strengthen your hands for this good work. Stay focused on the Lord. Draw near to God. Have great faith in God. And tonight, when we give the invitation, whatever needs you have, you come. But the principal need, I'm going to ask you tonight, we've got a great work tonight. And the devil will get us distracted by busyness and all kinds of other things. And I just want to encourage you tonight. October 20th is a special friend day. Don't go on vacation. Don't take time off. Be prepared and ready. Help us to give the best these next two weeks, the best emphasis we can. We've got, we've got thousands of flyers still to be given out. Help us to make Friend Day, this coming Friend Day, the best attended Friend Day from all the cumulative numbers we're going to have that week, from all the cumulative numbers to, for the glory of God. More people can hear the gospel. More people can have an opportunity to hear that Jesus loves them and get saved. You help us tonight to do all that we can to reach your neighbors and friends and come with delightfulness and excitement. Make sure I get introduced to your guests and friends so we can welcome them well to the church and make them feel very accepted and well. And we're going to have services going on in the different languages things that day to hear the gospel so people can be, have an opportunity to be saved. Don't you make that commitment tonight with me? Would you join me tonight to bring those names before God and put it down? Hey, King Hezekiah took the letter that was given to him that threatened him that he was going to be annihilated, and he put that down in the, before God. He went to the temple of God. He put it down on the floor and got on his face, and he committed to God, and God overwhelmingly gave him a victory. And tonight, we need to put down those names before God because just as much as we have means we're going after, the devil doesn't want those people to get saved, and the devil wants to keep those people from coming to church. And you pray with me for the great God that we have. They'll change people's schedule and change the situation so people come.